ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Nightlife. News breakdown. Well, after announcing yesterday a major reshaping of Australia's naval surface fleet, Defence Minister Richard Miles has now pointed to the fact that Australia is facing a challenge in recruiting enough personnel to meet the needs of the ADF now and in the future. In other words, do we have enough soldiers and sailors and uh, Air Force personnel to do the job? Defence Chief Angus Campbell last week told Senate Estimates that Australia's military military was worryingly understaffed, a shortage of more than 4,500 people, almost 7% as of January the 1st this year. But the Minister feels the excitement caused by the news yesterday of plans to acquire six heavily armed naval vessels and 11 general purpose frigates should help to attract staff. Recruiting numbers are starting to to turn around, uh, but there is definitely a challenge in in relation to encouraging more Australians to serve in our Defence Force. But I actually think that's why yesterday's announcement was also so important. Yeah, well, maybe. Recruitment, of course, is just one of the challenges facing the nation's military. There's also the reported tensions between defence high-ups and the minister and concerns about the adequacy of other ADF equipment from the AUKUS subs to the Apache helicopters to the Army's drone capabilities. All of this, of course, at a time when Australia has probably uh, never been more delicately poised in terms of existential threats. The Financial Review's Andrew Tillett's been at the forefront of the reporting of the tensions between the Minister and the Defence Chiefs, as well as the changes to the Navy's procurement. And he joins us this evening. Andrew, good evening. Welcome to Nightlife. Good to be here, Philip. Thank you. Great to have you with us. First, let's get to yesterday's announcement about the Navy changes. And you've got news about the early frontrunners for the Navy's proposed new fleet of general-purpose frigates. What are we looking at here? Well, these are, in a way, probably the most important element of the, the sort of the $80 billion total shipbuilding announcements that, that were toted up yesterday. Um, essentially, you know, these are the frigates that will come first to sort of start plugging capability gaps, and the government hopes to get them by the end of uh, the 2020s. Hmm. Um, essentially, we've got it down to, to, to four contenders, one from Spain, a Spanish design, a German design, a Japanese design, and a Korean design. Uh, the Spanish uh, and the Japanese designs are pr- probably the front runners from from talking to to people around the traps about it um, for a few different reasons. Mostly though, because they sort of use American weapons, which we um, have in common as well. So that's a sort of a very important way of thinking for our for our military about being able to interact and interoperate with the with the US. Mm. Um, but there'll be other sort of reasons, factors that come into it as well. Um, you know how quickly. The shipbuilders can can deliver ships. The Koreans, they're very efficient industrially. Uh, you know, they'd probably be the ones who'd be able to turn around a ship quickest for us. And the Germans, um, their design is sort of basically a descendant of the um, the Anzac frigates that our navy has as its workhorses at the moment. So, we've also got very compelling cases uh, to have it. You know, it's it's not like there's only clear one that ticks all the boxes, but um, by the same token, they've all sort of got their weaknesses as well. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I made the point in the introduction about the fact that all these announcements are all very well, but they're all quite long into the future. And as we know, Defence never produces things on time or in the original budget or in the original numbers. And when they even when they arrive, can they even crew them and put them to sea? This at a time when probably things in our neck of the woods, this you know, the... the uh, 
the Asia-Pacific here, I've never been more delicately poised. I mean, the threat is now and over the next 10 years, and we won't see any of this hardware uh, inside 10 years, will we? No, I mean, um, you know, sort of the early 2030s is when we sort of um, start to actually grow the fleet because Mm. some of the Anzacs are going to have to retire in the interim. So we're actually going to go backwards uh, on the government's own numbers uh, for the next few years. Um, I mean, there's sort of a consideration that, you know, if there is a war that breaks out between the US and, and, and China, you know, Australia in a, in a military capability sense, we probably haven't got much to offer anyway. You know, no. you know a couple of frigates here and there is not going to make much difference when the when the big boys are duking it out over the Taiwan Strait or something. But, um, uh, you know, long, longer term, though, we, we need to sort of... Um, we're on this path to, to, to build it up um, and the, the, the big dollars will sort of start to really drain the budget on the 2030s. And, and what wasn't sort of really spoken about yesterday is that we've sort of got this naval shipbuilding plan on one, on one, on one hand and also too we've got the, the nuclear-powered submarines coming down the, the road with the, um, the, the billions that they will soak up. So we've sort of um, got a very big, expensive bill coming at us mm. as well as sort of technical challenges to make these things all work. Although the submarines, I mean, they haven't even decided what the submarine is yet, have they? Apart from the fact that they may purchase a couple of US-built Virginia-class submarines, uh, the other ones that Australia is supposed to participate in the build haven't even been agreed upon. No, we don't no, even know what sort of boat it is. It doesn't even exist on a piece of paper other than no. it'll sort of be British DNA. Yeah. All right. You look. You broke the story, and good on you about the um, tensions between the minister and the top brass. It appears that uh, they both have a low opinion of each other. It seems the <laughs> minister has a low opinion of defence bureaucracy, and uh, and it's returned in spades. Uh, I mean, maybe this was always so. I don't know what your view is about this. I mean, maybe defence top brass have never liked their minister, and likewise, uh, partly because defence never seems to produce anything on time and on budget, as we've discussed. But might yesterday's announcement take some of the heat out of this relationship? And what's the current situation between Russell and Parliament House? I mean, does Richard Miles ever leave his office without being heavily armed? <laughs> well, I think friendly fire is always sort of just a part of the job for being um, between Defence Minister and Department. Look, um, the, the impression I've got is that, you know, the... the Defence Minister or DPM, as he as he apparently likes to be called, um, he, he his sort of relationship with the sort of the very senior chiefs are okay, but as you sort of start to get down, sort of the, the next couple of tiers, sort of like what we call the two star ranks, so mm. major generals and things like that, you, you start to run into their you know personal thief, um, fiefdoms and 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 things like there. So that that sort of maybe seems to be where the tension sort of is really at its its greatest. Um, but you know, there's there's frustration. There's little things like the minister doesn't like um, typos and, and and grammar mistakes in, in in ministerial briefs, which you know some people might dismiss as nitpicking. Others sort of say, well, now if you can't get basic things right, then how can you sort of trust the rest of this information being presented? But you know, there's I think there's a lot of struggle on in in, in money essentially. You know, defence is. For, for a department that gets $52 billion, it sort of feels like it's crying poor a lot of the time because um, just so much of it gets soaked up with current projects that, you know, mm. as soon as you try to want to do something new, you, you you really can't. So there's a lot of tension there. Andrew Tillett's with us, Defence and Foreign Affairs reporter with the um, Australian Financial Review. 
talking about the defence announcements over the last day or so, the Navy is pointing to the idea that some of the new ships will be optionally crewed. I love this phrase. <laughs> Basically, that means there's nobody on board. And uh, someone, presumably, with a, uh, a couple of um, control sticks, is operating the ship from afar. The Army today also announced that it had some drone technology on the way too. Loitering musicians, they're called. Sorry, lo- loitering munitions. Did I say musicians? Lo- loitering munitions and kamikaze drones. Look, coming out of the Ukraine conflict, and uh, for that matter too, what's happening in the Gulf at the moment, it does seem that the, the modern way to, to fight wars is with drones, remote weapons, and what is called, I think, small, large amounts of what are called swarming drones. Is, and the, we don't have these things, do we? Essentially, that's right. I mean, you know, we, we've sort of seen, as you said, in Ukraine, that the, the effect of the, the, the kamikaze drones, you know, they've got a little grenade or a little explosive strapped to their belly, um, go along, the operator spots the target, tank or whatever, goes in, blows it up, and and, and, and just sort of very, very effective, very cheap. I mean, these are just sort of, you know, not much bigger than what you sort of buy at JV Hi-Fi. Mm. Um or, or those sorts of places. Um, for a long time, we, we've sort of been in uh, defence has sort of been very reluctant to get into autonomy and, and the the and, and and drones and things like that. And, the, and those sort and the systems that they have shown interest in are very big, sort of expensive, exquisite platforms, which you know if they were to got shut down, would cost a lot of money to replace and to buy. But you know this announcement about loitering munitions. Is very significant. Um, it's a, sort of the first time we're getting in, into this space of uh, this cheap, replaceable mm. um, equipment. The the ships that they're announced, you know, on yesterday, uh, these un- optionally uncrewed ships. Funnily enough, though, we actually will. Richard Miles was quite adamant that we will have um, people on them still. Um, this sort of particularly legal issues around it for one thing, you know, that essentially if you leave these things uncrewed, they're, you know, fair game to be seized by um, adversaries and things like that. So, you know, it might be just one bloke up in the little control booth um, just mm. waving to let people know that he's still there. <laughs> <laughs> yes, good luck in finding volunteers for that. All right. Look, there's some other concerns, aren't there? I mean, the helicopters, the US aren't using aren't using Apache helicopters anymore, but we're, yeah. buy, we're buying them. Uh and and you know, the drone technology changes a lot of this weaponry, doesn't it? I mean, even down to the submarines. I mean, with the talk of drones and detection technologies improving all the time, and underwater drones and so on. You wonder, I mean, you wonder whether really the nuclear sub option is dead on arrival. Is it suboptimal, perhaps? Yeah. Um, I mean, as you see in Ukraine, just how much damage they can do taking out Russian ships and helicopters, just hmm. relatively easy. You know, and these are the big platforms we're buying as well. Um, look, I, I think with the submarines, um, my, my view is, and, and this is not based on, on talking to people, but just from, from covering the round, is I don't think we'll ever sort of consciously say, right, that's it, we're getting out of nuclear submarines as a sort of a, um, as a sort of snap decision. But my, my impression is that over time, it might just get too damn hard to do it. You know, it soaks mm. up the money, the... You know, you've got to deal with the US and we're obviously seeing, you know, congressional squabbling and unpredictability there. Um, you know, we're relying on Britain to build these submarines for us ultimately and they've got troubles in their programs. Um, you know, technology's moving along with, you know, questions about how detectable these are. Part of the reason we're getting nuclear submarines is that they can sort of meant to be able to get out of trouble 
quicker in, uh, than um, conventional submarines. But you know, in 10, 11 years time, um, when these submarines are starting to to enter service in Australia, they may well be outdated hmm. at all. So we, it might just become easier to say, right, let's move on and, and go with the yeah. cheap kamikaze drones. There was a bit of, uh, look, moving on uh, <laughs> onto politics and domestic politics. I mean, there was a bit of cheap speculation, wasn't there? I mean, it doesn't appear to be any, have any basis, really, that there might be an election this year. I mean, you know what, there might be. I mean, it depends. The, election, the government will call an election when they think they can win, obviously. They have to have one, I think, by May next year. Mm-hmm. And the Prime Minister was saying this morning here uh, on uh, ABC Radio in Sydney that uh, uh, that there'd be a March budgetary announcement next year. Uh, uh, so, I, I mean, that's the fact of it, isn't it, Andrew? There'll be, a, there'll be an election when the government thinks it can win one. And that, that could possibly be at the end of this year. Could. But then again, that's not really saying much, is it? <laughs> that's the old cliche. But look, as, as someone who also got the Prime Minister had to plan a wedding in an election year, I've got some sympathy about him trying to find a, a date where he can um, square those two circles, a wedding, wedding and election timing. Um, but look, I, I, you know, perhaps that will be the best guide to when he holds it, when the save the dates go out for the wedding. Mm. Um, look, I, I, I tend to think, you know, He'll go. There's the option of going later in the year if, if the economy starts to pick up. You know, there's if markets are factoring. There's there's likely to be rate cuts at the end of the year. Um, if unemployment sort of stays in in check and people are feeling good about themselves, there's the, the possibility there. Even something like a um, the U.S. election. You know, if we end up with with Donald Trump coming back, you know, that would make play well for the Prime Minister here, you know, people want a bit of stability and things mm. like that. Mm. So there's yep. those factors. Always. Always. The Prime Minister was speaking with, uh, as I say, ABC Radio, Sarah MacDonald this morning, and she was interviewing Blondie's Deborah Harry, the pop star. Uh, Blondie's Deborah Harry was on air. That turned out well because the Prime Minister was due on air as well. There was a bit of a clash, but anyway... Uh, Albo was quite happy to uh, to talk with Deborah Harry. Have a listen. G'day, Debbie. I'm a big fan. And, oh, hello, uh, Minister. <laughs> it's uh, lovely to chat with you, Mike. They said to me outside, "Oh, do you know you're probably the only only uh, politician in in Australia who'd be happy with being bumped for for <laughs> Debbie Harry?" I said, "Yeah, no, absolutely fine." I've got some of uh, the early albums on vinyl. Parallel Lines is my favourite. Oh, good. Oh, thank you. This is so, such a surprise, and so thank you so much. This is fabulous, and and you know I can't wait to get back there in April and and come for a visit. I hope that I can meet you in the flesh. Oh, in the fantastic. flesh. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Oh, darling, darling, darling. He can't wait to meet you. Oh, terrific. This I'll be hanging great. on the telephone for your call. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> swapping that man. Swapping lines. Well, the, the Prime Minister getting it down with the kids, albeit older kids in this case, but still. <laughs> Look, well, good news on wages growth too. Bureau of Stats data showing wages grew 0.9% in the December quarter. At least they're not going backwards. Federal Treasurer, Treasurer Jim Chalmers was pleased, seeing the news as encouraging. We're seeing real wages growth ahead of schedule, and that is a very, very good thing. Uh, and these numbers today are very welcome, they're very encouraging, they're very pleasing, uh, but we know that people are still under pressure. 
Now, his opposition counterpart, Shadow Treasurer Angus Taylor, made the point that the cost of living pressures might not be dented by the rises. We all want to see rising living standards for working Australians, but the data out today on wages will be cold comfort for hard-working Australians' families. The combination of sharp increases in prices, 12 interest rate increases under this government... Hmm. Well, Andrew, good news, though, on real wages there. I mean, at least, as I say, they're not going backwards. You wonder, though, if the RBA is watching closely, does the Shadow Treasurer have a point? Well, I think in a way it does. You know, we've sort of had, you know, almost now two years of, of interest rate increases and in, in inflation. And, you know, even today I was sort of filling up and I noticed, you know, petrol's still around $2 a litre. So it's hmm. um, people are still feeling those hip pocket pressures. Um, and And... The other thing too with the wages figures, you know, as my Fin Review colleague Mike Reed points out, a lot of it's been driven by uh, growth in, in 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 public servants' wages. Um, good luck to them, but you know, it's the private sector where most of the people are, are, mm. are working, and we're sort of obviously, you know, seeing unemployment tick up slightly. So it might be just a little bit of um, good news for now on, on wages growth, but that sort of, um, you know, we can expect maybe softer wages growth over the course of the year. Um, but look, you know, it, it does, you know, again, feeding into the election speculation, it sort of does maybe help shift the mindset among people, you know, if they feel like they're not getting, getting it, if they feel like they're getting ahead, um, puts them in a better mood and, and things like that. So sure. it'll be something that the government sort of, Watches, and it was something also too that they promised at the last election that they would uh, get wages moving. If you sort of remember that mantra, so they can sort of, um, hmm. for now, tick a box on, on that front. I guess so, Andrew. Great to talk, and great work on those stories. And uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Phil. Have a good night. You've been listening to a Nightlife podcast. For more great conversations about the issues that impact you, as well as features on travel and food, head to the Nightlife webpage. You'll find it at abc.net.au slash nightlife. You don't need to be a night owl to enjoy the nightlife.